Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So at last, and after something of a fraught build-up, the COVID inquiry is underway. So what happens now? Who's giving evidence? How will findings be shared? And when it's all over, what would look like a successful inquiry? The inquiry is going to delve into the details of the pandemic and see former prime ministers called to give evidence. Has any incumbent of number 10 had to govern with his predecessors still so present and so unhelpful? We'll check in on how Rishi Sunak is dealing with the ghosts of prime ministers past. And how can the government make a success of its pledge to relocate civil servants from London to other parts of the country? And will this plan actually help level up the country? Well, the flagship relocation location is to Darlington, and the IFG has been in the northeast to check out how this new civil service centre is working out. To discuss all this, I'm joined by IFG Deputy Director Emma Norris. Hi, Emma. Hi, Hannah. And also with us is researcher Jordan Urban. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that our guest today is Chris Cook, senior reporter at the Financial Times. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm pleased to join you. So let's start with the COVID inquiry. Announced way back in the summer of 2021, the inquiry held a preliminary hearing this week and will start its public hearings next week. So how long will the inquiry last? Who will be summoned to give evidence? And how long until we hear any conclusions? And when it's all done and dusted, how will we know if it's a success? Well, luckily, Emma here is our resident inquiries expert. So Emma, what happened this week? Well, it might be worth a quick recap for anybody who wasn't listening last week or managed to completely miss the news. There was a big fight over some evidence that the inquiry wants to get hold of and the Cabinet Office does not want it to get hold of, at least not unredacted. Um, So these are a series of WhatsApp messages, diaries and notebooks from Boris Johnson. But really, it's about the kind of WhatsApp messages, diaries and notebooks notebooks of of lots of senior officials and politicians who are likely to um, need to hand that kind of material over to the inquiry. at the moment, government seeking judicial review of whether or not it has to give that material to the inquiry. This week, it's been slightly quieter. We're waiting uh, to see when the JR is going to take place, expected around the 30th of June. But what did happen this week was a preliminary hearing that took place on Tuesday. Now, preliminary hearings are kind of procedural updates about the process of the inquiry. What happened this week was that they gave a short update on the judicial review, but there were some interesting kind of further revelations in that. So the first was that we found out it's not just Cabinet Office who are being difficult over what they can submit. The Foreign Office are also offering only heavily redacted WhatsApps. So this is an argument that isn't going to just be about one department. I think it's going to be about a range of departments in government. The chair was also really critical about deadlines for witness statements and being repeatedly missed by government and, you know, made quite a strong statement about expecting people to abide by the deadlines that have been set. So, you know, we started in that preliminary hearing to see some of the tensions that are emerging, not just with Cabinet Office, but with government more broadly. And they also said that it's not just WhatsApp material that they're arguing over, but apparently even material from Google Spaces, who knew that um, government was using Google Spaces too during the pandemic. Um, But then the big event is that the first public hearing of the inquiry is going to take place next Tuesday. This is for module one of the inquiry. So this is focused on how prepared we were um, for a pandemic. Um, We don't know who the witnesses that are going to be called um, are yet. They are either going to publish the witness list at the end of this week or on Monday. We do know that it's unlikely to be some of the big names. It's probably going to be experts. But at some point in the next few weeks, as part of these public hearings, we'll start to see some key former politicians give their evidence to the inquiry. So we know that David Cameron, former prime minister, has been asked to give evidence. We think that George Osborne, the former chancellor, has also been asked to give evidence um, to this module. So it's likely to be very lively when we start to see those people coming in and talking in public about what they know. 
the fact that the JR hasn't happened hasn't delayed the start of the inquiry. And, and what's the sort of timescale for that? You said it was going to happen late June. How quickly will we get an outcome from it? It should be really, really quick. The question is that um, once the JR happens, say the JR rules that, in fact, it is up to the inquiry to decide what's relevant, then Cabinet Office have to decide whether or not they're going to appeal that judgment. I mean, they've indicated that they probably won't, but we don't know for sure. Similarly, the other way round, if you know there's a surprise and actually Cabinet Office win, um, I think the inquiry will need to decide whether or not they want to appeal the judgment. So it could drag on if there's an appeal. Um, but in theory, after the 30th, we should be able to move on quite briskly if there is no appeal. And in the meantime, the hearings are continuing. The hearings will continue as planned, exactly. Chris, the thing that government seems to be missing in some of this is that it's the word statutory <laughs> when we talk about public inquiries. Some of the things Emma was saying about sort of missed deadlines, reluctance to give up evidence. Does government slightly miss the fact that they actually do legally have obligations here? I think the the centre of government has a long-standing view that fundamentally any question about the release of information in any context is something that is purely the prerogative of the executive, even when there are statutory obligations. And so the I sort of come to you as a sort of person with a thousand-yard stare about fighting with the cabinet office, because fundamentally any FOI requester asking for any information of any sensitivity from anywhere in central government fundamentally is engaged, whether they know it or not, in a fight with the cabinet office. It is an extraordinary department at the centre of government that, that is running a campaign to prevent the disclosure of information that it is statutorily obliged to give on a weekly basis. The resistance to giving over information to the inquiry is not just the cabinet office, but I think you have to also remember that the cabinet office itself advises other departments on disclosure. I think that's why this judicial review is so important, because there is a risk that this, well, there's a very clear risk that this just drags on throughout the inquiry, that, you know, every time the inquiry requests information from a department, they start being challenged on relevance. And so actually kind of putting this to bed and having that judgment in place, um, you know, kind of sets a line in the sand. I think I think what's interesting, though, is that I don't actually think you're seeing a kind of a blanket, it's not relevant, we want to challenge what that the inquiry is requesting. Another thing that came out in the prelim hearing this week was actually the chair praising the Department for Health and Social Care and saying actually they've been, you know, really transparent, they've provided everything that's been requested and really holding them up as, as, a, as a model for the way that other departments should be responding. So there's clearly, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of kind of tension um, between government departments on who's kind of holding things back and who's actually being quite open. And it's surprising in some ways that that DH is one of the departments that's being so open because, of course, it's, it's one of the departments, you know, that has has had the most to do with um, uh, with the, the pandemic and, you know, lots of its decision making is going to be poured over as well. One of the things I thought was really striking in the in the government's documents on the, uh, the government submissions is that their their argument strikes me as totally stupid. One of the things they say is we don't want discussions about illness, particularly. And I said, well, actually, the prime minister almost died in the middle of this period. So discussions about illness, and this is in the middle of a pandemic. Discussions about managing literally how staff were coping with the pandemic is obviously salient. They obviously need to be able to see. Uh, understand what the sort of cabinet collective responsibility was was doing and how it was operating during this period. So I'm afraid, actually, messages from Rishi Sunak to to Matt Hancock being rude about other cabinet ministers are actually within the domain of the of the inquiry. And some of the things that we know they have excluded that Hallett, the 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 Justice Hallett has said were excluded, like the policing decisions around the Sarah, Sarah Everard stuff, show that their judgment on what is and what isn't of interest is a bit bonkers. Technically speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
understanding collective government responsibility, particularly in the period when the prime minister almost dies, is obviously going to require a lot of people to disclose some pretty uncomfortable stuff. I should, I think it's it's possible the cabinet office doesn't hasn't internalised that all not all of this stuff will be published, and if it's not relevant, it won't be published, and they don't trust other people fundamentally. But I think it, they just have this this you know death cult sort of view of the world. They're just obsessed with controlling flows of information, and they cannot ever get across to the idea that that it's up to someone else. The the roots of their their fights with FOI go back right the way to the introduction of the Act, when they were absolutely appalled to discover they could lose in court, and that judges wouldn't automatically take an elderly pinstripe man's views on what was or wasn't in the public interest to be released seriously. I think, I think as you're saying, Chris, there's something really dangerous actually about the argument that cabinet officers are trying to make, which is that they should be the judge of what is relevant to the inquiry. As you've already said, you know, some of the things they've already deemed irrelevant clearly are not irrelevant. But also you can't have an institution which is receiving information requests from the inquiry deciding on what's relevant. There's clearly a conflict of interest there. And it's not just about kind of cabinet office. It's about the precedent that that would set for others, yes, for other government departments, but but what about for other public inquiries? I mean, think of Grenfell. Can you be in a situation where organisations that are receiving requests for information from the Grenfell inquiry get to decide what's relevant or not to submit? It's just completely inappropriate. Clearly, the public inquiry is an independent body, is the body that is supposed to decide what is relevant. The Inquiries Act is pretty clear on the spirit of that, which is why, you know, I think everyone's pretty clear that the judicial review will, will go go in favour of the inquiry. I think it's also just worth noting that part of the reason for an inquiry, right, is to prevent recurrence. And if we are going to have another pandemic, people are going to get sick. Cabinet collective responsibility might break down. This stuff is clearly within scope of, of the inquiry because, it, you know, we need to understand how these things happen this time. So if it happens again, we know how to better deal with it. There's one thing I've written about in the FT, which I thought was really striking. And it's a really big question for government, which is the fact that until Boris Johnson sent it in last week, the cabinet office had not secured copies of his WhatsApps, right? So they they were, they was their argument was, well, we actually don't even have this information, was part of their part of their reply to to the inquiry. And the I st- I think that is actually pretty amazing. But it's up to a minister to determine what what is worth keeping, isn't it? That's what you were writing. Exactly. So there's this if you look at the Lord Chancellor's Code, there is a which is the sort of record keeping book. It says things that are required for the public record need to be preserved. That's the sort of fundamental principle for understanding decision making. And it has a special category. One of the things it specifically highlights is that departments have to have the tools to be able to locate and put their hands on uh, information that might be sought by a public inquiry. That is that is written into the Lord Chancellor's Code, um, the oddly named record keeping code. But the way the cabinet office has interpreted that in its guidance to ministers is, as you say, Hannah, is that you're allowed to use private email accounts, private phones, private WhatsApp systems. But it's then up to you to decide to enter things into the record. And there are sort of two like locks, if you like, that keep information out of the out of public records. The first is that you have to decide that what you're talking about is a work product. So if I go for beer with you, Hannah, Hannah and I know each other for a while, if I go for a beer with you, Hannah, is it work or not, right? That's the first question I have to decide on. The second question I have to decide on, and whether to disclose this information, is whether it's significant. So the rules say 
it only has to be disclosed to public record keeping if it's significant. If we go for beer every week and then I start giving contracts to the IFG, is that significant or not? You know, how are you to decide? And that's information that if it were kept inside of the state IT systems, inside the uh, minister's diary, would obviously be picked up and retained. But if it's inside these other silos, it's not. So what they've done is create a sort of system where they can create a sort of deliberate ignorance for the official system. So if you use WhatsApp, you're basically allowed to sift your own stuff, decide what goes through. And you have to decide things are both definitely work products and definitely significant before you're required to release them to anyone. It's absolutely a maze for lobbyists. It's absolutely designed for corrupting and corruption. Um, and the the in the midst of a pandemic, when everything moved online in particular, people are right that, that we're catching stuff on WhatsApp now that would have been caught in informal conversations. But also we're catching informal conversations with lobbyists that previously would not have been possible without supervision or or being caught in someone's diary somewhere. Let's zoom out now to look at the inquiry going forward. Emma, what should we expect in terms of the future process? When are we going to start to find you know out any conclusions from the inquiry? Robert Shrimsley in the FT this week, I think your colleague Chris was writing about the problems of mm-hmm. you know inquiries often dragging on for a long time. Is that what we're going to see here? Well, look, I think the inquiry is going to be a, a long inquiry. Then that's the nature. That was always going to be the nature of an inquiry into the pandemic that's touched you know so many kind of corners of society. At the moment, public hearings are due to conclude in 2026, and then a final report will come sometime after that. So you know 2026, 2027. But you know there's been a lot of focus on on that date. It's not as if that's the first we're going to hear of any findings. Actually, the inquiry has been structured in quite a thoughtful way. It's been broken up into a series of modules. You know, we're doing preparedness, then government decision making. Then we're kind of moving on to healthcare, all sorts of of other subject areas. Those modules are going to be written up. They're going to have reports published and recommendations published in kind of real time, if you like. So I think we'll probably start to get some recommendations on preparedness early next year, early 2024. We'll probably get recommendations around government decision making at another point next year. So we're going to see recommendations in some of what are likely to be the kind of the most controversial modules quite soon, much earlier than 2026. So it's going to be a long inquiry, but I don't think we're going to be waiting five years to, to hear some of uh, some of the chair's conclusions. Which is important. So some of those lessons can start to be learned. It's really important, right? Because otherwise, you know, you some inquiries that have gone for, you know, a big bang final report, you know, five, six years after, after the fact, government's moved on, public institutions have moved on, they've changed, they've already reacted to what happened. And the recommendations that you're landing are out of date, they're anachronistic. But that I don't think is going to be the case here. I mean, government's still in the process of learning things they land next year should actually lead to change. And what about the the perennial problem of follow up Mm -hmm. to a public inquiry? Is that going to be an, an issue here, do you think? Well, I mean, I still think it's incredible that we invest the kind of power we invest in statutory inquiries, the kind of money, time. And there is, beyond having to present the final report of the inquiry to Parliament, essentially no levers at all that we can draw on to try and ensure that government acts. Um, There's no requirement for them to provide regular reports on, you know, whether or not they've implemented things. There's nobody who has the power to hold them to account. So, I mean, I hope that having interim reports and interim recommendations will, will make a difference, will mean the inquiry itself can do some of that work. But I think a really important thing for the inquiry is thinking about what happens 
when we've reported? How are they building relationships with select committees with Parliament now to try and ensure that Parliament plays a role? And what other institutions might be able to hold government to account once they've reported? The RHI inquiry in Northern Ireland has essentially agreed with the Northern Ireland Audit Office that it will play some of that role. You know, is there a similar institution that should be playing that role for for the COVID inquiry? Um, Because otherwise, what's it all for? Jordan, you're helping to run the IFG's commission on how the centre of government works or doesn't. What questions do you think the inquiry should be asking about how the centre of government worked during the pandemic? Yeah, so the inquiry has very broad terms of reference. I think it will need to ask a lot. I think it needs to cover everything from why the UK wasn't as prepared as it could have been for the pandemic. So the, the National Risk Register, uh, which is owned in the Cabinet Office, didn't even have a, a coronavirus outbreak um, on it, despite the fact, for example, Asia had seen outbreaks in the past. SARS, obviously SARS-CoV-1 uh, between 2002 and 2004, obviously our pandemic was SARS-CoV-2. Um, I think it needs to look at why decision making was so chaotic during the early days. So why did it take in Dominic Cummings telling anyway, Ben Warner um, in the Jeff Goldblum role, telling kind of senior officialdom and the prime minister that if they didn't change the plan, hundreds of thousands of people would die. Um, why did the Cabinet Office fail in its brokering role? Our uh, research has been quite critical of the Cabinet Office. It seemed as though there were different COVID policies um, in different parts of government. There were different assumptions operating. Um, why, for example, did the Treasury launch e-tout help out in summer 2020 when other parts of government were banking on the pandemic lasting a lot longer than that? Why did the COVID task force and the Cabinet Office improve things as time went on? And also whether there were the right skills in government to deal with the pandemic and whether the government was able to bring the right people in uh, as quickly as it should have been able to, to address the problems that were rising. And I expect that the inquiry will find that Kate Bingham um, and appointments like that, some of them were successful, some of them weren't, but certainly an interesting model to examine um, for the future. They'll certainly have a lot to think about. And Emma, in terms of the sort of big, really big picture, how will we know if the inquiry has been a success? What does success look like for public inquiries? Well, I think, I mean, I think the first question is, can they get access to the material they want? So we'll find out the answer to that in the in the next couple of weeks. Um, do they end up publishing recommendations in a timely way? I mean, you know, it's not going to be a success if we wait until 26, 27, but I think hopefully we're assured on that. And then, you know, do they, do they lead to change? Um, we'll see how government responds. But I suppose one of the other things we should be looking for is next year's an election year. There are going to be manifestos published at some point next year. You know, to what extent do any of the major parties commit to, you know, abiding by um, the recommendations of the COVID inquiry um, in manifestos? I think that'll be an interesting test to see kind of where um, where kind of key political leaders are at on this. I think one of the other tests um, will be how do people feel about the COVID inquiry? You know, there are lots of arguments over what public inquiries are for, but it is increasingly becoming the case that one of the things they're for is, I guess, to create a sense of catharsis to kind of bring people who have been affected by the pandemic in some way kind of with them. Uh, right now, it feels like actually the the kind of family groups are, um, are backing the inquiry because Baroness Hallett, has, the chair, has kind of taken a very strong line with government, shown her independence. Right now, it feels like that's working. Let's see, you know, how that dynamic continues over the next kind of couple of months and years as the inquiry progresses. Because of the timeline, because you're doing preparedness first, it's possible that it will have an enormous impact on the coming election. Because preparedness is fundamentally, do you have enough people doing 
doing jobs that you need in the event of a crisis. And so the fact that we had, you know, Tamiflu and all this stuff in warehouses was would have been useless even if we'd got drugs for the right disease because we didn't have enough humans able to run stuff. And it's very hard to see how the inquiry won't come to the conclusion that we basically run the NHS too hot. And if you think about that going into um, an election year when the Labour Party is quite likely to be coming under it's already coming under assault because it does clearly intend to to raise taxes and spend more than the than the counterfactual it's likely to be quite helpful to the to the labor party because it will give cover to their to their broad instincts and their broad position and it will be damning i suspect of of a lot of the way that the health service in particular was run and local government and how it was funded in the years up to the pandemic well we will sure wait to find out Now, one thing we're going to see at the inquiry is the spectacle of former prime ministers giving evidence, as Emma was saying. That's hardly unusual, really. The public profile of some former premiers has hardly been low recently. This week, Sunak made a statement on small boats before jetting off to the US to meet Joe Biden. But meanwhile, Boris Johnson popped up in the Commons to lambast the government for slow progress on his levelling up agenda. And Liz Truss has been calling for inheritance tax cuts. Emma, in the past, we at the IFG have talked about how there's a loss to Parliament of experience and gravitas when former prime ministers and ministers leave the building after losing office. Should we be welcoming the willingness of former prime ministers to stay on the green benches? Well, I mean, I think certainly it's made things more entertaining um, in the last couple of years. Look, I think um, I think whether or not you welcome it depends depends who you are. Obviously, having former prime ministers on on the back benches can provide an unwelcome kind of focal point. Proposition and rebellion, I'm sure we're going to get onto that, can steer attention away from the agenda the prime minister wants to pursue. Misdemeanors of uh, of past prime ministers can also draw attention to issues that current prime ministers might um, wish to to move past. We'll see, you know, what happens with the Privileges Committee. But but I think, you know, it is also important to remember that some former prime ministers do provide a certain level of kind of authority and gravitas on issues that, that really matter. I mean, think of Theresa May's recent interventions on the impact of the illegal migration bill and modern slavery. You know, sometimes these are these are knowledgeable people who can bring that experience to actually quite positive effect, provide, you know, much needed scrutiny. So um, I think it, the answer is it depends on, on which former prime minister you're talking about. And what they choose to do. Chris, I mean, on balance, these interventions at the moment from his immediate predecessors don't seem that helpful to Rishi Sunak. No, no. And I think I think you have to be quite careful with Liz Truss in particular, who I guess we have to technically regard as a former prime minister. There is something faintly funny about her turning up at the Cenotaph and turning up at the coronation with the other prime ministers. Um, <laughs> There is an odd dynamic because obviously she's trying to desperately repair her reputation and I think trying to get onto the sort of um, the rubber chicken circuit, the sort of right wing rubber chicken circuit and become a become a sort of Goldwater figure. You know, the, the electorally disastrous, but um, but a true believer. And so I think we're going to see more and more of her becoming more and more unguarded. Actually, in the way that Thatcher did after office, that Thatcher post 1990 basically started going for applause lines and the people who are very, still very keen to hear from her. So Thatcher in office is a totally different person and with different politics, the person who actually ran the country. And I think she's already, trust is already on that journey. And the inheritance tax is quite a good example of where she's tacked out right from where she actually was, you know, when she was actually running for, for prime minister. Uh, Johnson's obviously a slightly different character because he's just still in it. He thinks he's still, there's still games to be played. Um, and, um, 
I, I think he's wrong, but um, as long as he still thinks, yeah, as long as he still thinks that, he'll still be trouble. Brave prediction to make. Jordan, back to the Centre Commission. What do we know about how Sunak's number 10 is operating differently to that of his immediate predecessors? Well, I think it's it's really interesting to compare the Sunak number 10 in particular to the Trust number 10. It was apparent relatively early in that Conservative leadership contest that she was going to win. And I think she thought very hard about how she wanted to number 10 and, and indeed her cabinet office to look, um, made some decisions based on the premise that she should have a smaller number 10, rationalise it down, move more people into the cabinet office. Obviously, her tenure ended up being disastrous. I'm not necessarily sure that was because of decisions she made to do with the structure of number 10, but more with the personnel. I think that she had a lot of very inexperienced people around her. And I think that really didn't help, particularly once things started going south. Um, Sunak, a massive contrast. Now, obviously, partly that's because he was thrown into the role, didn't really have time to, to get a team together before he went in, a lot slower in appointing his special advisors. But actually, I think that's ended up being for the best. He's got a lot more experience in there with him. Um, he's got some big names some big hitters who have done previous jobs in government and um, who've been in prestigious roles in, in Westminster and elsewhere. And I think that that's probably, to my mind, the biggest difference so far in the way that the Sunak and the Truss operations have, have been different. There's less factionalism, I think, in the Sunak appointments as well. I, I wonder whether the Sunak number 10 operation would have voted for, for leave overall. I suspect not. There are quite a lot of people in there who I know voted remain. Uh, they're quite distraught about the, the, the result of 2016. There were a lot of ex-Cameroons hanging around Sunak in a way that they were they were brought back after the great purges under under trust. And Emma, for Labour as well, I mean, there were a fair few former Labour leaders out there too, and they're not all entirely silent. <laughs> um, how has Keir Starmer approached using managing um, them you you've got i mean you've essentially got the full mix haven't you you've got you know Miliband, clearly much valued member of the shadow cabinet still very influential to jeremy corbyn blocked her standing as a labor candidate in the next election after you know the huge challenges around anti-semitism and then you've got obviously the, the big two the two former prime ministers blair and brown i mean stan has said himself being very open about the fact he's taking advice from blair and brown you know he, he's met with them multiple times uh, particularly focusing on the possible kind of transition into government that's what you'd expect in Starmer's cabinet there's very limited experience, hands-on experience of government. So drawing on those who have it, who've been through transition before, makes sense. And of course, with Gordon Brown, um, he led the, the Brown Commission looking at, you know, this series of constitutional reforms, many of which might well be implemented by Labour in power. I think overall, Starmer's essentially taken a pragmatic approach. He's obviously got a good relationship with the two former Labour prime ministers. Without being too close to them, he needs to try and set himself, you know, apart as his own person. I think for the other two former leaders, Miliband and Corbyn, their involvement is directly proportionate to their competence. <laughs> oh, Ben. Um... <laughs> I wonder, I mean, it's, I was reading a book about American chiefs of staff recently, and it, it seems that in the US, presidential chiefs of staff really had a tradition of helping their successors and mm. of being very open and, and saying, look, like, you know, we're, we're, we were on different teams, but now we're on the same side. We want the country to succeed. I think we had a similar tradition in the UK at some points. I do wonder whether we still have that and whether the country would be better off if, if we had that again. Well, if the COVID inquiry is causing headaches for the government and some former prime ministers are doing the same, let's change the mood by taking a look at something the government seems to be doing pretty well. And that's acting on its promise to relocate parts of the civil service out of London. If you haven't heard of Darlington Economic Campus, then don't worry, Jordan here has been there and chatted to people who work there and has written us a brand new report on how it's all working out. So Jordan, can you give us some quick background? What did the government promise to do and what is it doing in Darlington? 
So the government promised to move 22,000 civil servants out of London by 2030. About 1,000 of them will be senior civil servants. Now, almost 80% of the civil service are already based outside London. So the thing that's different here is policy and senior roles moving. Policy roles in particular, and particularly some of the departments that have moved up to Darlington, do tend to be very based in London. So the Darlington Economic Campus is the flagship campus of civil service relocation. There are now nine departments and public bodies based there, including the Treasury, which is sort of the campus's headline department, if you will. Um, they've currently got about 600 staff there who have joined in addition to the 700 staff that were already working in Darlington as part of the existing Department for Education office. They're expecting to end up with about 1,400 plus the 700 working at the DfE. And as I said, you went up there for a visit. Who did you talk to and what did you make of it? Yeah, we spoke to, to kind of local politicians, local officials, business leaders, civil servants working at the campus. To be honest, very positive impression. It's a, it's a really quite thriving place and it, it was really quite striking to see um, quite how many senior and, and policy officials were up there. It was great to see uh, Beth Russell, the Treasury's second permanent secretary, and some directors general as well. Um, it really does have a kind of thriving campus life and we really got a positive impression of what it's been doing both for the civil service and for the local area. Chris, what do you make of this initiative? You obviously used to work for the BBC and, and they did something very similar with Salford. That's right. Yeah, the, the BBC has a lot of these sort of um, these campuses. And I think the big insight that the BBC's restructuring sort of really brings home is that you really need to make sure that you have a whole sort of career path that you move out there, right? So so the thing that doesn't work is, let me to give you a real example, is that if you go and work on at the BBC on uh, Newsround, the children's TV programme, you have to go to Salford for it. But you're probably a journalist and most of the jobs that you're going to go back to or move on to will be back in London. So the people that go up for the for the for the children's news services generally don't really settle and they don't really they rent small flats. They basically lots of them even commute in and out and it's a sort of unsettled thing. By contrast, the people who work on Five Live, which is entirely in Salford, where you can join, you could join as the as a the lowliest runner and become, you know, director of the channel. That is all entirely in Salford. Likewise, sport is entirely inside Salford. You people settle there, they've moved there, they've really bedded in, they've added to the front of a better term, like the middle class of the trellis that you can build economic development around by moving those good jobs to to that bit of Manchester. I think that's the big thing. It, you, it, the, the real fruits come from moving an institution over in such that you don't have to, people won't dip in and out. And I, I would worry slightly about the civil service approach to this because it is fundamentally the case that the civil service policy teams revolve around the minister. Are people going to think, I can make a career there, I don't mind going there because I know I can become the second permanent secretary? Or will they think, yeah, how do I avoid going to Darlington? Because, you know, I'm always going to be sidelined, I'm always going to be a second class citizen. And that's, I suspect, going to be the long term challenge for, for, for how they make it work. And the, and the economic impact, if people are just flying in and out all the time. I don't think Leeds has been regenerated by NHS England having people turn up there basically once every month for a meeting. Jordan, what do you make, what did you make of the ministerial presence in Darlington? Is there any risk? I mean, obviously, it's quite close to the prime minister's constituency. If and when Rishi Sunak is no longer prime minister, is that going to make a difference? I think that 
one of the reasons we are so optimistic about Darlington at the moment is it does seem that there's a lot of both ministerial and senior civil service support for it. And I think one of the big reasons why I kind of emphasised earlier the fact that there are policy and senior roles based up there is because it does show the people who are there exactly as, as you were saying, Chris, to do with Salford. It does show the people who are there that they do have a viable career path right to the top of the civil service at the campus. One of the quite interesting things that a couple of the departments, or in fact, it might be more than a couple of the departments we pick up two in the report, the Treasury and, and DBT do is that any job in the department can be done from any location. So for example, in the Treasury, any job can be done from either London or Darlington. And what that helps to do is prevent there being sort of a regional ceiling, a cap on the specific roles that you're able to perform in specific locations. Um, it was interesting, Chris, coming back to, to ministers, it was interesting that the people that we spoke to at the campus actually were less interested in ministers coming to visit because obviously, you know, a ministerial visit is a ministerial visit. They felt more passionate, and this was absolutely of existential importance to the campus, that ministers allowed them to practice hybrid ways of working. So we had one interviewee that told us that if I got called into London because I had to have a meeting in person with the minister, I wouldn't be able to do my job from Darlington. And I think that's absolutely the sense that people have, that the reason this is going to work, if it indeed does work, is because ministers, you know, visits are important and they're particularly important important for the external perception of the campus and for the kind of local pride angle, but particularly important that they allow people to dial in, to do their job from Darlington, to have meetings, to give briefings uh, in that manner. I hope you're right. and It would be, it'd be good if we could move more of these jobs out into out into towns and cities that will, uh, which will appreciate them. But they, they, there's also, I think any every hybrid working environment has learned that there are also difficulties for, for with mixed economies in in working and if you have a few thousand people out of the office who only ever dial in and are you know don't have the opportunity to bump into people in the you know coffee room or whatever it's quite difficult to 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 make that work i know of cases from other departments where people are working remotely where they feel basically they've had to give up the one case in particular where they 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 moved away during the pandemic they were reassured that their job would be safe and they could continue to work remotely afterwards and that has remained true but they've discovered that basically they they just are not the the system is not enabling enabling that to really work for them and just to come back to the point that Chris was making uh, about the sort of extent to which doing this really mm. makes a difference in terms of the local economy, obviously part of the rationale was the link to levelling up. Emma, Jordan isn't quite so enthusiastic about how the Darlington shift is is contributing to levelling up. Is that is that a problem? I mean, I think it can contribute to whether you want to call it levelling up or tackling regional inequality. I think it can make a difference, but not not in that way. I think, you know, the act of relocating like some civil servants is not going to kind of shift the dial economically. As Jordan said earlier, right, like 80% of civil servants are already based outside London. So the number of roles that are going to be relocated as part of this are not going to shift the dial. It might provide a very small um, economic boost to the areas receiving jobs, but that's probably it. What I think it can do, though, is help get a kind of different kind of experience um, into the policymaking process. So, you know, making it easier for really talented people from different backgrounds to join the civil service, to get involved in policymaking, to really help, you know, bring some some understanding, some reality of life outside London into that policymaking process. So I think that's the way things like deck could have an impact on levelling up, not, not directly, but more improving the way we think about policy and decision making. I think I'd be more optimistic about what it could do economically, because I think the real effect of bringing in a group of particularly senior civil, more senior civil servants into a place at Darlington is that you're going to create more graduate jobs. You're injecting a sort of sequence of graduate jobs and 
if they settle there, you're, you're sort of injecting a group of unattached graduates into the labor force as well. So we're potentially talking about, say, you know, so is it it's another 700 that have gone in, is it? You know, they, we're talking 700 people immediately with a bit more cash, but also you've got another few hundred people probably who are probably graduates who've gone with them if they've moved there, which is why I think moving there is the important thing. And if you are a local school, for example, and you're looking for, for teachers, and you've got a load of these trailing spouses who are likely to be graduates turning up, these create opportunities. One of the persistent difficulties of the public services is finding decent skilled staff. Uh, actually, what you really need is jobs for both sides of a marriage um, in lots of these places. And this might help with that. So I think you could might you might find all of a sudden... I'm not going to bet on this, but you might find all of a sudden that schools in Darlington suddenly do a bit better because the teacher's labour market has got better. And you might find that local government has a few other sort of ancillary benefits because the because their, their recruitment is a bit easier. And then you might find that if you know once you get a bit of progress, Hull is going through a bit of, of getting a bit of momentum at the moment because it's managed to 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 build up graduate jobs. Um, and that's the sort of effect you might be able to to get. Oh, I think I think that's really fair. And I think exactly so, Chris, that the, the point is moving there, isn't it? And that means it's so important to find the, the kind of right place, the right geography. It's one of the reasons Darlington works, but one of the reasons, you know, thinking about what next is so important. You need places that are well connected to other places that have those kinds of jobs that trailing spouses and others can do and that enable them to move up there too and to stay. So I think there is that opportunity, but, you know, you have to get the profile right of the places that you're actually creating those campuses to ensure that the others are moving to and you really are able to kind of move and stay. It's interesting talking about Darlington being a well connected town, which it is. I mean, part of the sell of Darlington, and I think people in Darlington and the, the local leaders we spoke to were very explicit about this, is how well connected yeah. it is to the surrounding region. Actually, I was surprised by how relaxed the people that we spoke to were about people coming into the office sort of two, three days a week and, you know, maybe living in the surrounding area, partly because they recognised that was partly their sell. But also they thought, well, you know, these people aren't going to come to Darlington full stop otherwise. So actually, it's better to have them in two, three days a week, buying their lunch, maybe staying overnight, maybe, you know, getting a feel for the place, getting excited, maybe eventually moving here than it is to just sort of not get them there at all. Um, I also think, Chris, interesting picking up on your, your point, I think one of the big things that we draw out in our report is that one of the ways the DEC has kind of acquired the talent it needs so far is by basically pinching the best from other public sector institutions. Now, that's partly kind of to be expected um, pretty early, obviously, like treasury jobs in particular, but also lots of the jobs at the campus are quite, you know, new and shiny. Um, but to be successful in the long term, and I think the campus hopefully do recognize this, the DEC also has a role to export talented people that they have trained up to the rest of the public sector um, in the local area. And I think that will absolutely be pivotal to success. There's no point in having a campus that just kind of sucks up all of the, the good people who might work in the public sector in the area and then leaves kind of local government and the NHS, etc. and bereft of that. And Emma, what do we know about Labour's commitment to this agenda? Well, I mean, we know that they're very committed to kind of devolution, English devolution, you know, kind of pushing power outwards. I find it very hard to believe that they would in any way roll back um, this agenda, given the kind of things we've heard um, from Lisa Nandy, indeed, speaking here at the Institute for Government. They are obviously focused on regenerating local areas, building hubs outside London. So um, I, I would expect to see more of the same from them. Well, that's it for today. Thank you all for listening at home and thank you to Emma Norris, Jordan Urban and especially to Chris Cook. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and be sure to subscribe and give us a good review. 
and look out for some great IFG events next week, including one on the use of WhatsApp in government and another exploring what it takes to be a special advisor. You can register for both on our website. And while you're there, make sure to download our paper on Darlington too. One should never ever make predictions in politics, but I can safely say this isn't the last time we'll be talking about the COVID inquiry on this podcast. So tune in in the future for more of that. Have a good weekend, everyone.